music has always been and will never cease to be for me a celebration of you know our humanity and so i don't expect anybody it's not a funeral you know you're not coming to a funeral you people pay money and they go to see a musician or a band and they just want to have a good time they want to forget about their problems and and remind themselves of the joys of being a human being you're listening to one more tune conversations on live music my name is ian Byrne. Welcome to episode 57 of One More Tune, everyone. In this episode, I chat with singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and all-round good guy, Karu Ishibashi, uh, who performs under the pseudonym Kishibashi, about being perfectly woke, always scheming, and fighting over the last bottle of kombucha. Now, I discovered Kishibashi at a festival back home in Ireland last summer, and after two heavy days of hedonistic-fueled festivaling, he provided a very much needed and appreciated jolt of energy and positivity through his performance on an otherwise tame Sunday afternoon. So I was immediately intrigued by his stage present and it piqued my interest. Uh, so I have wanted to have him on ever since. And he was gracious enough to give me some time from his Californian mountains home last week when we caught up. Um, aside from being a world-renowned violinist who has toured internationally with such artists as Regina Spector, Sandra Lersch of Montreal and Alexi Murdoch, he is also the singer and founding member of the New York electronic rock outfit Jupiter One and has garnered praise from the likes of Bob Boylan, formerly of NPR, uh, who has listed him in 2012 as his favorite new artist, noting that he created a radiant, uplifting soundscape, which I think captures his sound quite well. Um, Kishibashi is currently promoting his wonderful feature-length documentary Omoyari, which explores minority identity and the incarceration of Japanese Americans in America during World War II. I got the chance to sit down and watch it the other week. Um, it's a beautiful story. Uh, and I think it's a story that deserves a very large audience. Uh, it's a very prescient tale in today's world. So make sure to check that out when it's released. It premiered in South by Southwest earlier this year, and I believe it's due out in January on Paramount Plus and HBO. Um, so keep an eye out for it. Um, Karu sent over a couple of songs from the film's soundtrack to enjoy on the show today. So we're going to be opening the show with Summer of 42 and closing the show with Red, White and Blue. Um, two lovely tunes. He's doing a mini US tour this month to promote the movie. So if he's playing in your town, do yourself a favor and go check him out. Um, he has a new album in the works as well and a bigger tour planned for next year. So make sure to give him a follow via the links in the show notes. And while you're at it, give one more tune a follow too. We're at one more tune pod on Twitter and one more tune podcast on Instagram. But more important than that, if you like this episode or any of the episodes, please like and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to the show on and if you're on spotify and if you're a fan uh, please rate the show it's a massive help and if you wanted to support the show too we're on buy me a coffee which i've linked to in the show notes as well right that's it for me a quick shout out to hector from chromatic pr for getting this set up enjoy the chat enjoy the tunes and i'll see you next time I wrote down in my book I was in love with you 
Kishibashi, welcome to One More Tune. Thank you for taking the time today to talk to me. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. Good, good, good. So we had a very, very brief uh, interaction uh, this past summer. You were playing a festival back home in Ireland uh, called Beyond the Pale. Um, and it was, it was very interesting. So you had like a, a Sunday afternoon slot. So basically like the third day of... Uh, of a largely electronic music themed festival you know it had been raining the previous two days but the sun came out on the sunday and i think it was like three or four o'clock you run onto the stage just all energy like just positivity you know all of this crazy good energy coming out which was a perfect uh, time for me personally because as i said after a couple of days at the festival you're you're a little bit tired on the third day so um it was it was a real kind of jolt um for everybody i felt uh, kind of seeing you seeing you up there um that was your first time touring in europe as your as as kishibashi is that right uh no actually you know i've been there several times you know even before oh, covid but in ireland uh i think uh no i, I played like, like a small bar in dublin like a long time ago and then other bands i've been through like with of montreal and then regina specter i was like in their band um but as kishibashi this was probably the first festival i've done um because oh, we the played the festival yeah the first festival because we played a, a we had a headline show at the church there's a chapel in dublin like uh called the i can't remember <laughs> it was a really cool like on the same uh, like when you were there so you did the, the, uh, the no, two no, no. shows no like months before i think it was ah, like uh, okay. yeah yeah and so um i think it was kind of uh it was it was really re- refreshing to be able to like to play for like a new audience and because you know the festival's like i don't think anybody knew who we were maybe a few people you know <laughs> but uh it was great it was like well, a miraculous well, go ahead no no good no you go ahead please it was miraculous it, yeah, uh, it was a miraculous weather, you know, because yes. <laughs> I was like, it was like uh, everybody, everybody was um, sunburnt 
they weren't <laughs> used to how much sun was out. And I remember it was like, it was su- such a wonderful time. So I got to spend a few days in Dublin too. And so what's the, what's the difference in preparation when, you know, if you're coming to Dublin or wherever to play a church versus playing, you know, the third day of a festival, is it all the same to you or, or does venue and, and where you are impact how you approach it or how you, how you, you play? Well, um, a lot of times, okay, festivals, you never know what's going to, what it's going to be like. Sometimes there's like another stage that's going to be super loud right next to you. So you have to have the benefit of the doubt of coming out with a loud sound, you know? So if I'm playing in a church, I can, and it's a headline, it's mostly people who already know my music. So they're coming to see me. So I can quiet, I can be quiet and have beautiful, like somber moments, but I had to limit that for a festival. That's that's one of the things bands have to do. Well, and it definitely seemed as if you had a point to prove or something, because you, you know, it was <laughs> oh, really? well, yeah. just from the. I, like, I always have a point to prove, you know. Okay, okay. Well, let's talk about that. And what what's the what's the mindset in getting on stage, and what is the point you want to prove? Um, well, as a musician, you know, you're always just conditioned to be an entertainer to some extent. So you always have to to kind of yeah show that. For me, like show positivity and, and connection through music, but otherwise, um, you know, if you're not super famous, you always have you have to <laughs> you have a point to prove, you know. And I think uh, you're just conditioned to just go in, in, you know, swinging. I think for like a festival, especially when there's nobody there, so you kind of you be honest to yourself. Obviously, do what you want, but I think a lot of I had to I had to bring out all the bangers, you know. And I had a great band. Uh, uh, in English, a, Lon- um, a band from London with me, backing me up. So it's awesome. And then, so what is it like, um, you know, how do you prepare or is it a different preparation from, say, touring as a, you know, touring musician with Regina Spector versus a Kishibashi show? Like, is it again, you do have more to prove uh, when you're the headliner or is that a kind of unfair way to, to characterize it? Um, well, when you're the headliner, you, there's a high, like a headlining you're headliner in a club, like a concert. That's like an experience. You know, people are paying a lot of money to come see you. So you have to, you know, you have to put on a good show and you have to make sure they're taken care of. For a festival, it's like there's a lot of different artists. So they're not really, they might be there to see you, but they're also there to have a, have a great time that weekend, you know. And so the expectation, I think, is, you know, you don't have to do a crazy stage show or like be completely engaging, you know. You're just kind of like there to add to that weekend, you know, I think. Gotcha. Okay. And so, you know, after you play these festivals or after you do these things, are you immediately on your Spotify and your Instagram? See, okay, like how many, how many more followers do I get? How many, what's my downloads like in, in Dublin that weekend? Like, did it work? Is that something that you, or even just musicians that you know, like really pay attention to now or, um, or not? No, not me. I mean, I'm like, I, I used to, <laughs> I used to be, I used to look and then cry, you know, but, uh, <laughs> I think like, uh, Usually you're just on the road. Uh, you know, one thing, one thing I do is I go to Instagram and I, I repost the stories because I can save that. They save on my phone, like the cool videos that people take. So I can actually have like a memory, a video memory that I can like use in the future. Does that make sense? Like people, yeah, like people post a story and I can like, if I repost that, I can save that video on my phone and I can have like, yeah, like a, like a narrative of that weekend which is super cool yeah um and speaking of narrative so you you went to school at berkeley for film scoring correct yeah yeah i was a film scoring major and so at what point did you like did you had you always just wanted to be in music or what stage did you realize uh maybe i just want to do like i just want to be a, a touring musician or musician myself well i was um alongside doing uh you know film scoring was my fallback what i really what i was really there to do was become a jazz violinist ah Okay. So, so I, yeah, so I studied jazz violin like really intensely. Like I transcribed a lot of solos and I like did everything I could to become an improviser on violin. And, uh, and then, you know, and then I studied film music because I, I, I like composing, you know, and it was like, it was a technical skill to, that I developed and I learned and developed. And so, um, I, you know, so afterwards I, I was really lucky I could float between the two and kind of have a music, a music only career, you know, for, my life and correct me if i'm wrong but is omiyari the first film that you have obviously you know it's your film your story but is it the first one that you've done the entire uh soundtrack for i know you describe it as a song film and i know you've done other film scoring work and whatnot but is this the first one that has all been you yeah i think this is a this is one where i mean i've, I've done my music videos you could say that that's all 
you know, like I directed my music videos, some many of them. And, but I think, um, as a concept from like document, you know, from concept to finishing, I think this is something where it's, I've never done anything like that, where it's like a documentary film that is based around all my music and my experiences. And w- regarding the improvisation, like how much, um, how much of the, like, is it all just, okay, because there's obviously a few different improvisations shown in the film, and you know you're standing in this field where this concentration camp used to be. Are you literally like, okay, how do I feel right now, and let's go? Or is something prepared a little bit beforehand? Do you kind of have an idea of where you want to go with it, and then just kind of color it in? Uh, so initially, it was kind of like I wanted to make some kind of film. Well, initially, I was trying to make a uh a symphonic piece that had these improvisations in it that would tell like different stories about removal or like assimilation or like these various concepts. And so when I would improvise, uh, I improvised different themes that I would potentially use. And so as the documentary developed and we knew that we actually wanted to do a documentary, I went, I'd go and think about, Oh, I want to talk about, you know, assimilation here. So I would improvise something that I thought would be good that could turn into underscore with, you know, into a, into a more historical documentary style. And so that, there was intention there. But we definitely, I definitely did a lot of different uh, things there just in case I wanted to use that scene for something else. And like, and so this was about four years ago in 2019, you, you, this endeavor started? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's six years ago. I've been working on it for six years. So yeah, 2017. 2017 started filming. 2019, my album came out. And and then now the movie is getting a full release starting next month. Is that correct? Yeah, I think uh, it's on Paramount. Can be on Paramount Plus, but I think it got pushed to January. I'm like Paramount Plus and Showtime. Just heard. Just heard. Oh, <laughs> breaking news! <laughs> that do you know what? That's, news. that's interesting because I was you know without you know, without getting too political or heavy about it, but there's some stuff going on in the world right now that um, when I watched this the the movie the other day, I was like, wow, this is very very prescient this is like because uh, first of all it's a story that you know looking outside in is not really told it's kind of um it's it's a little obviously you know look we can get into the intricacies of the united states of america and all that stuff but it's just not a story that that seems to be told a whole lot and then now with everything else going on it's it's so topical and so prescient so it's did, did that thing cross your mind you know uh you know as every all of this is happening and you're going on this press tour and whatever is that something that you think about or or is it separated i mean i think you know i'm a big fan of history so you know every time there's you know um in all aspects like how we used to live how we used to have conflicts with each other even how even those conflicts continue to to become a legacy of something that, you know, that manifests itself in, in how violent we are to each other. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if you're talking about the Israeli Palestinian conflict, you know, in particular, or like there's tons of uh, turmoil all around the world, you know, that one in particular, but, you know, human beings have been doing awful things to each other since the beginning of time, you know? And so it's more about like, um, I look back at these things and, and, and see these lessons of you know how we're always constantly um, in fear of each other, which I can see that as as the way we um, end up tearing, otherizing each other, and then ultimately marginalizing people. But then also, um, you know, there's a lot of um, part of my movie is about moving on and, and having forgiveness, and um, and that which is very difficult to do, especially if you've been wronged, you know. And so I think a lot of these things are. How do we find that ability to move on? And what do we do as modern human beings, knowing that we have the capacity to hurt each other? What do we do now? You know, do we turn a blind eye, blind eye to conflict, or do we intervene, or do we have more compassion or empathy, or approach it with compassion? Is my is really my my motto first. And so, like, okay, so twenty seventeen has started. Um, you know, you've spoken how you know from a creative side of things, you'd always. Um, made songs about, you know, love, fantasy, you know, loss, um, you know, pretty general themes. And then all of a sudden (laughs) you decide to do this indie rock theme. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. So then what, where did the, was it just a case of, cause you you know, you talk about your, your identity and your, your cultural identity and your kind of in between 
in between um, cultures and whatnot in that. So was that just something that always was in you and it just took till 2017 to whatever happened for you to discover this topic or just really delve into it? And then did you consciously or unconsciously make the effort to switch your your creative focus to these topics and how difficult or easy was it? Um, I think it was a, a gradual thing. Well, it, it started with really, and I think the Trump, when Trump got elected as president. Ah, so yeah. the, right, yeah. right, right, right. So right, right. what I, what I, I was just kind of like complacent in a, in a society where I felt comfortable, you know, comfortable being, meaning like, you know, everything's, everything's fine. I'm just playing my music. People come to my shows. I'm having a, a pretty decent life, but then realizing that there's, we still have a lot of problems and there's a lot of, um, there's, yeah, that there's, there's still racism and it was really showing its teeth in like, in politics and so like a lot of people around that time you know america just came to this reckoning of like you know what is what is systemic oppression and what is this systemic racism and so i think alongside that it was uh you know luckily i was stu- I studied for a couple of years before george floyd uh, before the murder of george floyd you know so i was like very fully prepared to understand what was going on whereas like a lot of people were blindsided you know um or like white people <laughs> were blindsided in america you know uh and so i think just, uh, it, you know, and I'm, I was all, I was in my forties, you know, I was like 42 or whatever. So it's, it's the kind of thing where I was maturing and I wanted to be, I wanted to do something different and I wanted to better myself. And so when I started, started studying this stuff and becoming more, um, aware of marginalization, I think that's when I started to grow and see, you know, and just become a more, um, holistic, uh, member of society, you know, where I like actually care about things and i understand things more in, in more in depth so i just kind of became an adult more of an adult you know as i like to think unless of just a childish musician you know. <laughs> and, and then so how did that affect your approach to your creating um and your performing as well like you know do you now have to sit down and think okay well we're going to open happy and then we're going to go into the <laughs> middle of omiari uh, you know a few pieces yeah. and then we're going to finish you know how does it how does it now inform your live um hmm. your live act well if it's something where i'm okay for example i'm going on tour with a movie we're going to play omoyari yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. on the second half we're going to put play omoyari full you know, so it's going to be like people are going to be seated. It's going to be, I'm going to talk about the issues and talk about the creation. And so it'll be somber, not somber, but, um, it's not going to be a party is what I'm, gonna say, <laughs> what I'm saying, you know, but the, the whole idea is that, um, I like to, music has always been and will never cease to be for me a celebration of, you know, our humanity. And so I don't expect anybody, it's not a funeral, you know. You're not coming to a funeral. You people pay money and they go to see a musician or a band and they just want to have a good time. They want to forget about their problems and, and remind themselves of the joys of being a human being, I think. And so that's, I, I will never forget that function for myself. So I always keep that in mind. You know, this movie happens to be kind of, you know, heavy in, in issues, but it's also like, um, for my fans, it's something that I want them to kind of follow my journey and kind of understand what I've been going through. And so this is like, hey, just let's let's just uh, check out the movie here. This is what I've been doing. Here's the songs that this is the process, and just kind of inform them. And I think my fans are sophisticated enough to, to appreciate that. Um, but then it's you know, but then like next, <laughs> my next album is like super funky. It's like a dance album, so <laughs> it's like it's kind of like everything I haven't I put aside for the last six years while making this movie. So, so and again, do you think was that a, uh, an unconscious reaction? Oh, it was con- to- conscious. Oh, so you wanted to like, all right, park this. Let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, create some dance floor fillers. Yeah, I mean, I had I had a lot of cool ideas that you know just weren't particularly appropriate, you know. So um, I kind of shelved them for a while. So this it's uh, also just as a musician, I always like to change things up. So I thought because I did a Moyari and I had a follow up EP that was pretty acoustic. So I, I just want to uh, push myself as a producer and as a songwriter to do something different. So okay, so you just said you want to push yourself as a producer and a songwriter to do something different. At what stage does the um, the live performance then um, factor into that? You know, uh, from the from the point of view of quote unquote wanting to do something uh, different. Um, 
like you mean or is that just is that just uh like a symptom of the music that you're creating will then dictate the show yeah i mean there's gonna i don't know i mean i might have i mean i still have my confetti cannons and you know i still i don't i don't have i didn't bring them to ireland but you know in in the states it's like a party you know so even even though moyari tour was a party because we play it's not like you just play the new stuff nobody wants to go see a band and who plays their only their new album you know what i mean <laughs> so you still have to play like other stuff so I play all the stuff they want to hear, and it's kind of a party. Here's my new album. I got a movie coming out. And then I'll have, like, a couple songs that are just, like, somber moments of, you know, uh, that kind of make people think about, reflect upon, you know, what I, what I want them to, to think about. And so it, it's always a mixture, and, I and you know, it's like a two-hour show. And so next year, I think, because it's a dance thing, I don't know, maybe I'll just crank it up a little bit, you know. Maybe get some, maybe get some more con- more confetti cannons, buy some more lights. No. more confetti cannons that's always the answer yeah um you're you've one of the best spotify bios i've seen the image of you sitting on the horse is obviously <laughs> amazing yes. and then your bio is just on tour forever um so <laughs> oh, yeah. is is that like have you had a break from touring at all in the past x amount of years and do you see yourself touring forever you know how has your relationship to touring um changed or evolved or where do you see it going well i don't know if you remember but there's this thing called covid 19 that happened vaguely you know just kind of put an end to touring for like two years so that actually kind of like helped me to realize you know what it actually probably helped a lot of people realize like what's what's important in their lives and i realized that you know just spending time with my family or my daughter you know and then i moved out to the mountains went to Bozeman, Montana, and then now I live in California, and just kind of appreciating nature and what it gives to us as humans, you know. Um, uh, and, yeah, just kind of, like, recalibrating the tour lifestyle, which is before, you know, before COVID, it was just go, 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 all, all the time. And you, you didn't even have time to, like, to sit back and relax or appreciate things, you know. And I think that's one thing that uh the one of the only few benefits of covid is that it helped people re- realize you know what is in fact important to them and so i don't know i i tour a lot more than uh my fiance would like me to you know <laughs> but it's a uh, i don't know uh, you, i'm sure you talk to a lot of musicians and i don't it's probably the same there's all, there's always people who feel left behind well she got to come with you to europe right uh yeah she played on she played on stage yeah because i because i remember yeah, yeah. it was it was adorable because you had you had finished your set or whatever and then you came around um with her to watch whoever was playing next and you guys were just obviously you know canoodling clearly just head over heels and low you saw us canoodling oh my god yeah not that i was a you know voyeuring or whatever it was just <laughs> you know you're, you're right there so then I, I went up to you and um yeah so she got to come with you on this one so maybe next one too yeah i'm probably i think it was like uh if it's in the summer she's uh th- th- that was actually kind of great because um uh yeah, because we had a I had a Dublin festival and an Athens Greece festival, uh-huh. but three weeks apart, and so normally I don't know. It's kind of like, what are you going to do in between? It's kind of hard to go back to America. Should I do it? It was almost like, should I do it? You know, but because she, you know, I, she wanted also she also had uh, like research opportunities in Europe too. So we kind of came together, and it's kind of a perfect, perfect win win thing. And we went we vis- we vacationed a little bit, you know portugal that was great nice 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 um i want to bring it back to the to the beginning can tell me everything you remember about the first concert that you went to whoa i mean the only one i remember uh, okay i was a i was like a metalhead in high school so i remember seeing my first shows i ever saw was probably stone temple pilots oh wow and like butthole surfers what do you, where was this what do you remember about the night oh flaming lips opened up and i remember this is before they were huge i remember they were really cool they had like um they had like the gasoline on the that's where you got your confetti <laughs> idea from i don't think they had that but they had the symbol with the um the gasoline or whatever probably like kerosene on it you know they hit it and it flames up they were doing that and i thought and i thought their music was cool and then i remember stone temple pilots went on and it was okay and then the butthole servers came on. They crushed it, and I think they were pissed off at the Stone Temple pilot, at Stone Temple pilots, because they made them switch because they just wanted to leave. 
So it's supposed to be butthole surfers, don't tell pilots, but it switched. So, um, that was my earliest memory. This would have been what, like early, early 90s? Yeah, Is this yeah. like peak early, STP? Yeah, oh, STP. Wow. I saw, um, Tool ones. I saw a lot of metal bands like Living Color. Um, I saw Pantera. They're great. Um, Sepultura. Okay. What about the last? <laughs> what about the last uh, gig that you went to? Oh, the last gig. I saw Jungle the other day, and that was re- they were really cool. Oh, they're cool. awesome. Yeah, I saw them uh, last month. Yeah, they yeah. they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Super Where, funky, actually. That was that was in California. Yeah, at the uh, Warf. Uh, no, it's like they, it's called like the Billy Graham Theater. It's a big San Francisco theater. Uh, huge. It was oh, like an okay, arena, okay. almost not an arena, but small arena. Did you see them do anything on stage that you have to now think about integrating to your into your own show? And and in, have you seen any artists that you've seen them do something? And you're like, oh, I gotta borrow that. I gotta steal that. They did have a, a lit up name, Jungle. You know, I was like, do I need to do that? You know, like have my own Kishibashi. I have. I usually have like a banner or something. You know, um, but I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know. It was inspiring. Like maybe I should if I play a big show and not a lot of people. Know, you know just to get that branding in, you know. So maybe I should get into that idea. Let's see. They put on a great show, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're, like I said, they, they know what they're doing. Um, what about, um, what does a good show look like for you, you know? You come off stage, um, how do you say to yourself, okay, that was good, or vice versa, that was bad? Um, you mean good for me? Sometimes, like, a good... Yeah. Um, hmm... A good show. A good show for me is like if it, if it sounds good and you had a great time on stage, and if people are like jumping around out there or like sometimes like, but then you, but then you realize um like if the energy level is high, uh, but then I, I've come under the theory that the energy level is just relative to how close it is to like Sunday. <laughs> so from Sunday to saturday night it's like a slow ramping up of energy so like you know you could be like having a great show in minneapolis on like a wednesday and be like oh man minneapolis is just sleepy and then you go back there on a saturday night and they're just like you know tearing the walls down you know so it's like uh so that energy level definitely affects my psyche like oh this is a good show or not but in the end you know it's like it doesn't matter to them they hear the same thing it's probably the same, similar to them. But the, okay, so say if you're playing, you know, you're playing um, Cleveland on a Monday, uh, and you're getting there, like, do you, in your own head, you're like, okay, it's Monday, it's Cleveland, it's not going to be crazy. So I have to then approach yeah. it a little bit differently. I have to do something else or give extra energy to in order to like kickstart it. Not necessarily, but I will change like the set list if it's like Friday or Saturday. Right. Okay. Like, have more dancey because there's going to be people like talking in the back sometimes. You know, like you know, it's not going to be. You can't do like too many quiet songs in a row like on a Saturday night. You know, cause, but I'll have I'm able to like have control over the crowd. Like I can get them to shut up, maybe for like two songs. <laughs> but like I shush them, I go shh over the mic, and it they it. Kind of quiet, but you can't do that like too much. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. What one shush is two shushes? Uh, one is two shushes. One shush is totally two shushes too much. <laughs> one shush is one. One shush is acceptable. You know? it's, I'm just asking them once yeah. for some quiet, right? In a very, a, like a very nice song. manner as well. Yeah, people do it too, and it turns into a room of shush. Good, good. And then, so I had pro, pro tip. Pro tip. Just one shush. Sh- sh- early, yeah. early on. Early on. Uh, just whatever song you want. You, you can reserve it one, one per night. Yeah. <laughs> um, I talked with um, Owen Pallet. Um, if you know who. Oh Owen. yeah, 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 yeah. I know him. Yeah, yeah he. I've talked to him in a while, but yeah, he's, he's awesome. He's awesome. Um, and he said that uh, lives in Toronto, right? He's, I think he lives in Toronto. Yes, he does. Yeah, I believe. Is he from? I don't know if he's from Toronto, but he's he's definitely Canadian. But yeah, he yeah he's yeah, he's definitely Canadian. Yeah. He's um, he's here. When I talked to him, he he was talking about mistakes on stage, like allowing himself mistakes. And he said that three three mistakes is the max he gives himself. Anything more than that, and he's being sloppy. Um, you know, one <laughs> one mistake, and you know he's not too impressed. Two, he's like, okay, fair. Three, then he starts like, okay, lock it in here. Is that something also do you prescribe to, or are you more, <laughs> uh, you know, 
do you, are you more freewheeling or are you more of a perfectionist? Uh, I'm definitely more freewheeling. I definitely don't count how many mistakes. <laughs> That's like, you know, um, and my musicians too. Like, I don't expect perfection from them. If, if they do the same thing over and over, like in the same song, I'll be like, come on, man. Like, just look at that part, you know, <laughs> but I'm lucky to have like great musicians, you know. Um, so, and also it's a, it's a live show. So I keep that in mind. It's like, if you want to hear perfect performance, why don't you just go listen to the studio album? You know, if you want to see human beings like doing things, um, and you know, interpreting music in front of you, then that's what a live show is. So it's going to have mistakes. Usually you can just laugh it off. You know, if somebody's out like consistently out of tune or something, that's not, I don't know. That's just not professional. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, and has there, have you ever had a, like a disaster? Oh yeah, tons of disasters, like all the time. But it's not consistent. It's just like somebody like messing up, or like somebody's too drunk, or I don't know. Like you know, <laughs> some, you know, it's just like things happen. People make mistakes. It's just like life. It's like watching the Olympics. You know, <laughs> it's like they're going for the triple ox. You know, they mess up, and you know, oh, it's not the end of the world. It's you're you're going for it. That's what's important. That's what that's the entertainment. And and having. Too, too, too many tequila shots beforehand is just, you know, ah, whatever, you know, learn, live and learn. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't drink that much anymore, like in front, before the shows, but, you know, it's like, uh, actually, in fact, I, I had a sober, I actually don't drink at all during shows anymore because I realized that I needed, I thought I needed that, like, lubrication, social lubrication that alcohol provided, but then I stopped as a challenge to myself once. And then everybody told me in my band, they're like, wow, your singing is so much better. You're playing so much better and you're singing so much better. And then I just got over it. And when was this? Like, was there uh, an incident or was it just a general overall thing? Like how long ago? Uh, it was like before COVID. It's like 2019 on tour, probably with the movie, you know, scenes from where I'm performing in the movie and stuff. So it's like, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a revelation to me. I was like, oh, I don't need alcohol to perform it makes no difference to me or the audience or you know it's actually benefit to me no, probably no difference to the audience so you you've gone through a lot of self-discovery in the last few years it would seem yeah i'm like really mature now and like ethical <laughs> and woke <laughs> so. you're finished you, you're, you're perfect you don't there's yeah. no more work no, right yeah that's it i'm retiring <laughs> breaking up breaking up with myself <laughs> um tell me about what's on your rider what's on the kishibashi rider um yeah there is like a tequila silver tequila and just a bunch of snacks. Nothing like there's always there's a lot of kombuchas that people fight over. There's always like four kombuchas and everybody wants. Something, so. <laughs> is that when tension is at the the most high when everybody walks into the green room and <laughs> yeah. the the fight for kombucha? <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's only four kombuchas. I guess we should get five, seven kombuchas. That's a lot of kombucha. Another guest described to me as he basically he posited that uh, the the two hours before you're you get on stage is when like if a band is going to break up it's more often than not the two hours before you get on stage <laughs> because energies are just so high and everybody's kind of like frenetic i'm taking a nap i'm taking a nap that's my nap time so so that's what i was going to ask what what's the typical day of a show uh for you you know what's your routine do you have any superstitions is there anything you have to do uh like in general mm, superstitions not really but um yeah, you just load in, set up. I definitely take a nap, like a 30-minute nap. And it's not like I'm fully asleep. I just, like, sit still in dark and quiet, like, usually on the bus, like, in the bunk. Um, I definitely don't I – don't, I usually can't meet with people, you know, friends. Like, oh, let's go out to dinner because it's just, like, in a loud place, and it's like I lose my voice. I have to, like, sing for, like, two hours, you know, entertain people. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty religious about my naps. And that's always been the case? Yeah, it just kind of helps me – if I'm like fried, I'm like, I don't like to go on stage like fried. I like to go on stage feeling good and energetic. Okay, so then we talked about um, the, the five minutes after getting off stage. What about 15 minutes right before you're getting on stage? What's your energy like? Do you get nervous? Uh, you know, put some, play some music backstage, you know, like a little filakuti or something, you know, something like get the ener get the energy up. Is there like a pre-show hype playlist that you that you get going? No, <laughs> no. But there has been a jazz fusion loadout that we play sometimes, like Herbie Hancock and just some really intense, like aggressive jazz fusion. A tense, aggressive weather weather report or something, <laughs> chicory or something. Um, and I noticed as well in the movie that um, 
it seems that basically wherever you are, you have tons of, of instruments around you, um, you know, in whatever room you are. Is is that the same on tour? Do you bring certain, like, obviously you need stuff for going on stage, but do you bring any other just fun noise-making things with you? Mm, no. <laughs> I think no. like what, yeah. Just what you need. Yeah, I, I, unlike other musicians, I just kind of play when I need to play. I'm not particularly like noodling backstage on anything, you know. Unless I have to, unless I'm like working on something. And do you? I like to have a guitar, guitar around, you know, like a little classical guitar, like noodling on that. Do you do you so use like, touring as an opportunity to uh, create? Like, do you find inspiration on tour, or or is it just just touring? Sometimes, like I'll have like a uh, like a, I have my phone on me all the time. So if I have like a cool, if I'm noodling, maybe I'll have like a cool idea, or if I'm I'll record it on my phone, or if I um if I'm just I have my laptop and I have like Ableton open chopping samples up that's inspiring to me you know, manipulating sounds just as an idea because i know i have to like go back at some point and like pick these ideas to make an album so i'm always like on the lookout for inspiration um and what's your life setup like currently versus and how has it changed um over over the years um so it's the same loop pedal. you know i have a pedal board that has like two line sixes and it's got an octave pedal it's got a delay and a reverb and a beatbox, you know, so I beatbox into this loop pedal just with my violin, same with the violin. And so that hasn't really changed. Um, I've added guitar, you know, I play, I've been playing a lot of guitar, so I have like a guitar. Um, uh, like a Wurlitzer. Oh, yeah, I have a guitar and keyboard, depending on the band. If it's like a full party band, then yeah, I'll have like a guitar and keyboard. And so given, you know, let's just fast forward to, you can create your own full Kishibashi show, like no expenses, uh, no expenses spared. What? No, no expenses, like like harness and like flying, like trapeze. It's your show, right? So again, yeah. you know, is there is there Kishibashi in in kerosene lit up <laughs> behind you? Are you gonna be vaulted? Yeah, like yes. what's your dream, or or do you have a dream? <laughs> kerosene. Um, you know. <laughs> Uh, a dream live setup, mm. uh, given your druthers. Like, what would be the, you know, do you want a 40 piece orchestra? Do you want to, you know, what do you want on your ideal stage? I mean, I play with symphonies, so I already, that's a dream that's already coming true for me. But, um, you know, what I would like to do is I would like to bring to Europe my American, like, show, which is like I have lights and I have like confetti cannons and, you know what I mean? Like, I have like, it's like a party. So what you saw in Dublin, like, on stage is like, it's like, 60% of like 70% of the show musically it's similar but you know there's more visual elements like just like any band has like there's a lighting person there's crowd surfing and I don't know stuff like that and, and you didn't bring them uh, last time just because it was a function of the shows that you were playing you didn't need to it was a shorter tour um well uh it's a <clears throat> expense kind of situation <laughs> you ah, know it's yeah, also daytime yeah, yeah. so you don't really need a lighting person during the day you know, if it was nighttime, True. I might have like potentially done it, but it's also like a first time thing. So I don't know. It, it, it really, it really just boils down to expense and cost. Yeah. Well, it's, and this is, you know, this is a hot topic in the in the music industry at the minute. You know, Live Nation and expenses and ticket prices and da -da 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 -da. Oh, making money. Um, what's <laughs> yeah. your what, well, what's your what's your opinion on you know as a touring musician? What a who's been doing it for quite a while in in a large um, large variety of formats. How have you seen the impact in your career from you know twenty years ago to now on expenses, royalties, how you're treated on the road, support that you get, um, everything? Well, so that's a lot of topics, um, but I think. Uh, my my motto has always been don't lose money on tour so like if i have a show i'll scale it back you know what i mean because so when i started kijibashi it was like i i had this whole solo thing where i was beatboxing and i could do everything myself so i could it was just me so i could just show up i could do like a 45 minute show and as i got more longer like an hour hour and a half or headlining shows which are like an hour and a half 75 to 90 minutes you know you can't just do, I can't just do it solo. So I, I started adding musicians and, and doing stuff like that. And then realizing that when you get to bigger and bigger rooms, you need bigger and bigger, you need more production. So you need like some lights, you need like doing, you know, you, you can't expect, you can't go to an arena and just have no production. 
It's like people just don't expect that these days. So, um, so I'm you know, so I scale up depending on what I'm doing. Um, I think there's always, if you're, you have to completely be scheming all the time, hustling, kind of figuring out how you can make your tours profitable. Um, I think recently, uh, I got my merch game up. So I was able to be profitable on merch. Merch is really big in my, in the States for me. And I'm trying to get that in Europe as I go. And it actually makes, it makes your tours solvent, I think, you know, because otherwise you, there's so many expenses like flights and baggage and I don't know, the hotels and, and stuff like that. And so it's so hard to like, to make it. But, um, I think if you're, if you're smart about it and you just can constantly th treat it as a business, you know, like a company, then you can, you can, you can eventually figure it out. I think. And what did you do to get your merch game up? Um, actually in America, I just had more variety. So I had like tons of like stuff. So it's like a store instead of like every, I used to go like every tour, just a new thing, like a couple shirts and, you know, a couple things, but then, and it was okay. You know, this, so, but then this time, like the last few times on tour, I bring like a variety of shirts, tons of vinyl, a bunch of like other things, different like price point items. And then that, I think people like to do that and they go and they see, oh, they already have this, so they get this, they have this, they get this and they want more and they actually buy more. So my merch like doubled when I started to go like bigger and it actually really helped my tour. And is it, you know, like how much do you enjoy or how much do you not enjoy the whole, you know, the business side of, of it? You know, if, <laughs> would you just prefer to be like, I just want to play and you guys figure out the rest? Or do you like being involved in all aspects, like the <laughs> schemes, if you would? Uh, I don't know. It's just being, a, you're, basically, you're an entrepreneur. So it's not like you like it or not like it. It's just like you have to do it. If you want, if you want to make music your business in your life if you want to make art your your business you have to be able to sell it because people are coming you have to you have to let them know that you're coming in a big way and that means like promotion with videos and whatever you have to do on social media to get them to know that you're coming to their town so they can buy tickets so they can get the guarantees and then continue to grow and that they can tell your their friends and then have that reputation of putting on a good show and then like and then and then when you get there you have to put on a good show obviously but then having that merch available is, you know it's a big deal so i think mo all bands will feel this the same way you know it's it's i'm sure like taylor swift thinks about it all the time too you know she's not just go she's she's probably constantly scheming about how to like make more money um, despite being the richest like touring person it's probably always just that's what I, I swear every single person has to do that if you're if you want to make a living as an artist and you said you had a few you know you've had to figure out a few tips or tricks on how to you know squeeze a little bit extra out um anything jump to mind on, on on what exactly like is this why you ask for four kombuchas and not ten because you're saving the money on the <laughs> on the other six no i think like that's like nickel and diming i don't know why we don't have more kombuchas on the writer honestly but um i think um you also want to you know i want to be comfortable with I want to be comfortable and I want my musicians to, to be comfortable so that they can put on a good show. So, you know, we spend a lot of money on, you know, the, having a tour bus and having like comfort so that, you know, we're not sleeping on floors or scraping away or, you know what I mean? Like, um, so we can have, and we can also have fun. And I think that adds, that can, that shows on stage that we're actually having fun and that we're friends and, and stuff like that. And so I, I try and teach my, um, I try and take care of my musicians, my crew, you know, but I think, I don't know. I think at some point, if you have the cash flow, you have to kind of think big. So like, I like invest in things like lights or production. You know, I think that's always that. There's always a plus to that. If you put on, if you have lights, you have like fun things, like things that'll delight the crowd. If you want to rent some dry ice for a show that's big, you know, or something. I don't know. It's like that's the kind of thing that will add to the experience you know for any concert girl so you so you do like being involved in like all aspects of the you know the stage production you like they're all your ideas that are being fulfilled on stage yeah i mean uh, i mean who, who else i don't have like a production designer you know so it's just me usually usually a band has like a bunch of people there there's like one guy in the band or girl in the band who's like into that so they kind of take the lead but you know for most indie people they don't have they just do it themselves it's usually a vision you can hire people, but that's not kind of, I don't have that kind of luxury. 
And then, so, you know, you're talking about getting a band on, on tour or whatever. Is that difficult for you to decide, you know, okay, I'd love six musicians, but I can only afford five or we should only afford five. And then how, how do I scope the show around what's available to me budget wise? Is that a frustration or is it just, again, like you're saying, <laughs> yeah. you just have to, you just have to get on with it? Uh, no, it is. It's the total frustration. It's like, do I need a sound person? You know, you should need, you need a sound person. You need lights. You need musicians. You could be like, well, I mean, you could, you could also say like, Hey, do you want, I've been to my musicians. Like, do you want a jam pack show tour, you know, with no days off or do you want some days off and maybe I could pay you less? You know, that's the kind of thing you would work out. You know, you'd be like, do you want it? Um, cause it's like there, your musicians are there to support you. You know, they're, they want to get paid obviously, but they're also there to continue to, they want to be with, be with you. So it's like something where you kind of work together and be like, where it's like a band, like a lot of bands go on tour and they don't make any money. The tour manager gets paid. All the people get the, the, the crew get paid because they're doing the really hard work, like laboring every day, you know? And then a lot of times the band comes back and they realize they don't have any money. They didn't make anything. So that's like, uh, it's not really sustainable like that, you know, unless you're con- conscious about budget. That's what I'm saying. In that regard, are you like, again, from what you've seen, how it evolved, is it getting better for artists in general or worse for artists in general out there? I think there's still like a lot of appetite for live music. Yeah. So I think that I don't, I don't think if you, um, if you can't make it work, you know, you should just keep, keep at it. I think, I think it's a very healthy market to be, to be playing in a band or going out there. There's like tons of people who are, who will be willing to come and support you. You know, it's just how are you going to, how do you get out there to let them know that you're coming to their town? You know, is the hardest part. Promotion. And it's expensive. Can be expensive. Yeah. Well, yeah, nothing, nothing's cheap. Um, what about venues? Can you walk into a venue and kind of get a feeling of, did you know, vibe basically <laughs> like is is there a vibe a good vibe slash bad vibe in certain venues or is it more like how you're greeted and treated can dictate if a show is going to be good or bad or or, or if you're worried about stuff you know is the sound engineer going to be grumpy <laughs> stuff like that uh yeah there's definitely some grumpy house sound guys for sure um they're mostly yeah they're all almost always guys that are grumpy <laughs> and then uh sometimes you know, sometimes if I, I'll be like, what are the pre-sales for the show? And if it's like low, then I'll be like, hmm, okay. <laughs> no to expect, you know, like a semi, like a not full room. You know, it'll still feel good, but it's not like sold out. You know I mean? So if it's like sold out show, um, they, you know, the venues tend to treat you better. All your complete rider shows up. There's more staff. Everybody's nicer to you <laughs> for some reason, you know, if it's not sold out and, uh, I don't know. They don't build, they don't bring out all the bells and whistles, you know, for you. So not necessarily. But I'm I'm just I've seen that happen. Yeah, in general, yeah, the attitude's a little bit. They're more excited when it's sold out. The promoters are for sure. So um, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> but I, but you know, I think uh, some yeah, with the exceptions of really shitty venues, most of, most of the time it's like you don't know. You just go in and you can. You can they're mostly great yeah unless like the unless the green room is really crappy sometimes then you're just that's a bummer so what's what's a really crappy green room it's like tiny there's not enough chairs for everybody you know what i mean so you can't you can't just hang out there sometimes they're really nice you know there's room to to sprawl out you know people don't have to like hide on the bus yeah stuff like that sometimes the green room's far away from the stage that's really annoying it's like down cavern. It's like, oh, it takes like minutes to get there. So if you were to, you know, again, have your druthers and design your own venue, what are, let's say, you know, the top three hallmarks that you have to bear in mind? Sound has to be good. Lighting has to be good. All that stuff. The kind of the smaller details. What are three, three benchmarks of your own venue that are, you're going to make for artists? Um, nice green room. <laughs> I mean, green room. Honestly, the audience experience is really important. I feel like, okay, you know, like some venues are like, they really know how to treat the guests. They're like, thanks for coming. You know, like the people, just the security and stuff. They're like, nice. You know, they're tough when they need to be, but they're like, generally just like, they're, ha- they're like, they're professional and cordial. There's some like shit venues who just like, 
in some big cities that don't treat their guests very well. And uh, like, I don't appreciate that. And I think it custom and, and your fans don't appreciate it either. And they actually, they, they actually, they, it's, it's, they brand like a negative experience to that venue when they go there, you know, strange. Yeah. So I, I think that I really appreciate that kind of thing, uh, where the staff is, is, is cordial or even friendly, you know, um, other than that, having a decent sound system is like pretty important. I think yeah, I've seen venues that don't seem to care. And but like when when you play these venues or you go to these venues, are you kind of making a mental note of like, okay, next time I come to the city, let's try and book a different venue? Uh, only if it's really bad. Yeah. Really bad. So what constitutes really bad? Just the sa- bad yeah, vibes. the sound. Sa- well, the sound totally sucks on stage because it's just too like they haven't treated the room right. Um, I don't know. It's kind of dusty. Like, or like, oftentimes, like the does that still happen to you? There's, I mean, it's not in like the major markets. Sometimes you go through a, a B, I don't want to say B market, but you know, like a a market that's not an A market. So you go through there, and they're, they're like, uh, I don't know, they just don't get they don't get you your full rider, and then you're like, where's my ice? They don't get you ice in the back, <laughs> and then, um, or like they. Or they like kick people out. You know, one thing that annoys me is that like they want to clear the room, but you're you're selling merch, or people, or there's yeah, fans waiting yeah, to yeah, meet yeah. you, and they just like kick people out. They're kind of mean to Get them, out, yeah. you know. And I, I I don't appreciate that kind of thing. So, yeah, but I, I I don't complain about stuff unless I need to. I usually if something's really bad, something bad happens. Um, it's not it's never like that bad. I just point it out to the booking agent, and then he he makes a note about it. You might even like tell them about it. Um, one question I forgot to ask: um, when you're when you're going to shows, when you're attending shows, can you turn your musician brain off and just be a part of the crowd, or is it inevitable that you're like judge them? You know, you're <laughs> not judging, but like thinking about all of the like what pedals are they on and what's the filter on the light and i wonder what the you know can you can you turn off and just enjoy it or do you do you stay in the the analytical musician kind of brain yeah i think i have to yeah i'm pretty i'm always like analyzing i you know when i go to even like i went to go see a broadway show and i'm thinking i enjoy it but i'm also thinking oh that was that was a cool move with the that you know that reveal was really cool you know or something about like lighting but I don't know. Maybe if I'm really high or really drunk, then maybe maybe I can actually enjoy it without thinking about the production or the music. The music I'm always listening to music, so I'm always thinking about this and that. You know, so that's impossible to, to remove. But I I can also I can enjoy it too. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, would you ever do a Broadway show? Could you ever see yourself doing some sort of like writing one musical? Yeah, I could probably write one. I don't want to be on stage. I don't think like uh, <laughs> like my like my own. What would I? Would I, like somebody else's musical, or like I'm the star in my own musical, Kishibashi the it's, musical. I don't know. I don't know. Omiyari the musical. Omiyari the musical. <laughs> Concentration camps, 1942. Yeah, yeah. get get yeah. Trey Trey and Matt from South Park on as <laughs> yeah. consultants. Yeah, I think there's already a mus- there's actually already a musical. George Takei made a musical about it. Oh no shit! Oh, it's called. Um, I haven't seen it, but there is one. It exists. Wow. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Karu, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah. I'll I, I let you get out of here. I finish uh, all of these chats with um, with one last impossible question, and I don't want you to think too much about it, just okay. whatever pops into your head. Yep. It's the last concert you're ever going to see in your life. Uh, who's the main, the two supports, and what venue are we going to for it? Do they have to be alive? No. Oh, I always wanted to see Thin Lizzy. Tin Lizzy, oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why yeah. Tin Lizzy? That's well, a random like, one. Well, I mean, you know, one more tune, right? You know, so yeah. Also, uh, I love Tin Lizzy. I think they're that guy's fucking rad. Um, yeah, Phil Linda, one of the greatest yeah, Irish Irish rock stars ever. I think so, Funny yeah. story. So he he's buried where I where I grew up. He's buried in the graveyard there, and we always used to. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but we always used to go and have drinks uh, beside <laughs> his his grave. So as a tribute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's he's a legend. Yeah, legend. Yeah. So, Thin Lizzy headlining. I don't know. It's, I guess we could stay with Irish <laughs> Pogues, maybe. And uh, yeah, Pogues opening. Wait, one more. Sorry. Sure. It's an Irish band. Uh, 
the Dubliners in there too. <laughs> Just a full lineup of all Irish heroes. You know, I wonder. I wonder if there's ever been a night where those three. I know the Dubliners and the Pogues have shared stage many a time. Yeah, there has to have been a night where where Phil in it and the boys were up there with them as well. So maybe yeah. your dream dream lineup has has happened already. Interesting. Nice. Nice. And what venue? What's the venue, your favorite um, venue, or, or what's the best venue what's for that, them? What's that place? Um, is that place Trinity in uh, Dublin. What's it called? The, Trinity College? No, there's one. I played there with uh, Montreal once. Um, mm. Olympia Theater? Is that what you're talking about? No, it was, no it was like a cool rock club. It had like wooden floors. Vickers, oh, Vickers Street? Mm. Was it like a so, pub or a venue? It's like a rock venue, medium-sized rock venue. Dublin and we partied with this anchor woman, a TV anchor woman afterwards. And we like smashed but accidentally smashed one of her like vase vases in her apartment and <laughs> she kicked us out. <laughs> she kicked you out? Yeah, I mean it was it, it was embarrassing, so we left. You know. <laughs> it's like a nice wow. pause. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. Uh a wooden floor oh. It was it was around around where Trinity College is, so I guess it's, it's The like, Workmans. Maybe. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. They were on the keys. Well, it wasn't like small. Was it? It was a medium sized rock club. Did you? What, did you walk outside and the River Liffey was there? Yeah, the river was close by. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the Workmans. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. That hey, one. hey. <laughs> that one. Good, good lineup. All right. Um, and so, okay, so Omiyari is um, coming to Paramount soon. Well, January now. Um, I know you're going on a little tour next month to support it. Um, you just mentioned a new album as well. What does the next little while uh, look like for, for Kishibashi? Just more on tour forever, you know. Nice. Probably, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll be promoting the movie. But actually, yeah, just doing vocals, getting the mix set up for my new album, and then maybe taking a break. So beyond these November dates, there's no other plans for for any any tours. Yeah, the spring's kind of um, I have like little things here and there, but maybe I'll come back to Europe in the summer. I kind of enjoyed that last year, so get some festivals. Okay, and any timeline? Any timeline for for the new um, oh uh, dance floor filler album? Oh, the, the album uh, that's uh, probably next fall. So definitely, definitely Ireland and Toronto for sure. Come away with me 
cloche Fill the world with our rust. 